also feel like a lot of my best lessons in business entrepreneurship come from that. Because what I've also learned, I say to our teams now, an angry customer actually isn't that bad. I mean, my preference is a happy customer. Um, but then I would take second, I would take an angry customer because the worst is an ambivalent customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Jay wouldn't have even taken the time to take me in his office and yell at me if he didn't still care. Yeah. He didn't still want it to work. And then a year later when we'd made him happy, they also became our best reference and really helped us, you know, ultimately sell a ton of other customers. So I did learn like, and obviously that was like longer, but it's like, oh, you know, when a customer's angry, if you take care of them, like good things will come up. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Goddard Abel is the co-founder of G2. It's the largest and most trusted marketplace in the world to buy and sell B2B software. He's a super successful entrepreneur, and Goddard previously built Cloud CPQ Pioneer's Big Machines, which was acquired by Oracle. And he built Steelbridge, which was acquired by Salesforce. He's also the chairman of Logic.io and 3Kit. Goddard is definitely someone helping to create the next generation of configuration technology. I started out by asking him about growing up and his early influences in his life that may have directed him on the path to becoming an ultra super successful entrepreneur. Yeah, no, my biggest influence was my father, Gert. And I grew up with, obviously with him and my mother, but he was also an entrepreneur in a very different industry. He was building a small pump manufacturing company. And actually I was born in Germany and that's where actually my grandfather has started that company right after World War II. And my father took it over and it was maybe about a hundred employees, not a huge company. And then actually my dad moved us to the U.S. when I was nine years old, he moved us to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hmm. And uh, because he wanted to start a U.S. subsidiary for his German pump company. And frankly, he tried to hire somebody remote. It wasn't working. And he was also very adventurous. So he's like, I'm just gonna move my family to the U.S., chose Pittsburgh and try to make it happen. And so, and frankly, he also and his company had a lot of trials and tribulations. And I remember to me, that was a kid, he was like a larger than life figure. And to me, his company seemed huge. Sometimes I go to the office with him on weekends. I spent one summer in high school working in his manufacturing plant, holding together pumps. And uh, so I grew up with that. And it was both kind of a, you know, exciting, but I also like it felt a bit intimidating where I'm like, I didn't think I could be as big as my dad. I could ever do it. But some part of me wanted to. Yeah. What was it when you look back or think back and remember going into that office, seeing what your dad was doing? What was it that you took from him or the environment that you could say, like, even still today is part of your DNA with some of the businesses that you've built? So what I remember from visiting my dad in his office was, I think he brought this, I don't know, he, to me, it seemed like just this confidence in leading his team forward. And I could tell that his team members and his employees, they would look up to him and he seemed to just instill a sense of confidence. Um, and like I said, to me as a kid, it was kind of intimidating. He seemed like this larger in life figure that was leading his employees, his team forward, and they clearly trusted him. And then the other vivid memory I have, actually, this was like 
in the late 70s. But I remember my dad was also an early fan of computers. And he had mm. his first computer and it was like huge memory plates. And I think the storage was probably yeah, infinitely less than you get an iPhone today. But I also remember him like having the first time I saw a computer was this like big multi, it was like memory plates that you know, would store some of his accounting data. Yeah, it's amazing when you think back to, I mean, even late 70s, I, I, I go back, you know, we're about the same age, just from the 80s and the, the VIC-20 or the Commodore 64. And it's so funny to think, I mean, it's incredible to think what is what has happened. But you, uh, you ended up going to a school that uh, there are a lot of computer scientists, uh, MIT, and then to Stanford, what was it there, let's say at MIT or, or, or Stanford that, was there anything that really kind of caught your attention, got your interest that you would have thought at the time that I wanted to be in business? Yeah, I think both MIT and Stanford, even then, you know, and I was at MIT early 90s, Stanford late 90s, they were already all about fostering entrepreneurship. And I remember at MIT, I participated, they had, I think at the time it was like a 10K entrepreneurship competition over at the Sloan School. And uh, but I think MIT was probably ahead of the curve on this. It was interdisciplinary, you know, as an engineering school, there were MBA students, and you kind of got together on teams, did business plan pitches, and the winning team, you know, got a check for, I don't know, it seemed like a lot of money, maybe it was 10 or 20K at the time. And, uh, but, and they taught us like, hey, how do you create a business plan? How do you think about entrepreneurship? And actually, my ultimately, my Big Machines co-founder and I, we almost licensed the technology from MIT. This was for 3D printing with molten metals. Hmm. I'm still is not sure it's been totally commercialized 30 years later, but they were also hmm. encouraging engineering students like us to try to take some of that technology, some of that IP, license it and commercialize it. And so I think I was lucky, you know, one, to be exposed at MIT. And then when I was at Stanford in the late 90s, it was that crazy internet boom. And, you know, we were in the middle of Silicon Valley. I think Netscape was just down the road. At that time, Google was being started at Stanford. So it was so infectious where, you know, and I think my dad actually wanted me to come into his pump business. But then I was just like, dad, I'm sorry. Like, I, I have to build a tech company. I got, you know, I kind of got the bug of tech entrepreneurship. How did he handle that when you had told him that? Was he really gung-ho or was he more, you have to go do your own thing? Well, I think at first he was sad. You know, he wanted me to join him at his pump manufacturing company because he was kind of ready, getting ready to retire. Um, and luckily for him, ultimately, he wound up selling his company to a large Roper Industries. And you know, so it turned out fine and he was able to retire. And then luckily, my father ultimately became supportive. You know, once he kind of got past his sadness, he actually became my first customer <laughs> for machines because my first idea for an internet company was to help my dad sell his pumps on the internet. So he very much inspired it. And then I was lucky. He's like, okay, I'll be your beta customer. And he wrote me you know, a small angel check, which you know was wonderful. Although I will also say years later, that was probably my greatest fear was that I was going to blow my dad's money and that I was kind of wrong. Like I was kind of that third generation dumb kid that spurred the family business and then blew it on an internet company. And that like later when I was failing, it kind of felt like a burden and though I just, yeah, you know, I'm so thankful for my dad because he really gave me the idea, the inspiration and the start to my first uh, internet company. Yeah. Tell us about that first company and, and what you did and how you thought of it and started it. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, the idea really came up when I visited my dad, Thanksgiving 99, I went back to Pittsburgh. You know, I got out of the reality distortion zone of the Silicon Valley. And then the idea that came to me is I want to help companies like my dad's 
business, sell online. And he honestly wasn't thinking about it yet. And I talked to him about it. And back then, Amazon was only selling books. And you might remember, and maybe just starting sure. to sell CDs. And then my dad was so skeptical because he said, look, my pumps, they're very engineered. Uh, and every time I generate a quote or take an order, I need a German pump engineer that configures the right pump with the right materials, housings, couplings to give the customer the pressure, the flow rate to handle all their technical requirements. And there's no way you can do that online. But I saw Dell actually really inspired me because Michael Dell was already selling PCs and PCs back then were more complex. And I could obviously choose like, hey, I want a 14 inch Dell Latitude. I want this much memory. I want this chip, this operating system. And Dell had figured out, you know, there's a rules engine behind the scenes, an online configurator that would guide you as a shopper online to having the perfect PC configuration. And behind the scenes, all the components fit together. You could see the pricing. And then I, you know, that was really the idea. I was like, oh, I'm going to help. And I called the company Big Machines because my father's pumps were big machines. I said, it's bigmachines.com. We're going to take the sale of these products online. So that was kind of a simple idea. And I was also lucky back then, you might remember VCs were willing to fund smart young kids with internet ideas. And we were clearly clueless, but the whole world was clueless on the internet, right? So until the bubble burst, we were able to get off to a flying start, you know, where first my dad signed up as a customer. I've recruited four of my friends from MIT and the other startup I was working in in the Valley. And, you know, we raised $20 million and, you know, we just seemed like we we're going to change the world in a year. Tell me about that. What, going back to that time, what was that like initially? You're coming out of Stanford, you raised $20 million which is a lot of money, even at that time, I mean, or, or at that time, just think about it. You're on top of the world, it must feel like. How are you feeling inside launching this business? What were some of the things that were going through your mind at that time? Yeah, I mean, I was 28 years old. So I was also just, I think, full of ambition, probably like a lot of young MBAs, and maybe too much ambition and hubris. But yeah, at the beginning, it felt kind of euphoric. So I'm like, oh, I have this great internet idea. And first I convinced my dad and then all these investors and my friends. And, and I think I promised them, hey, we're going to take this company public in a year because that's what people were doing then. And my investors said, that sounds great. And uh, so it was euphoric. And uh, But then I think it started to quickly shift. You know, By the end of that first year, it started being like, oh, bleep. Because then I was starting to try to raise more money. And all of a sudden, these investors that you know, when we first started said, oh, you guys are brilliant, like smart, young, clueless kids. We'll give you money. A year later, and you remember this, Robert, the market really shifted. Yeah. At the end of 2000, beginning of 2001, when I wanted to go raise my Series B, investors all said no. And I, I pitched like 50 investors, and they were all like, no, no more money. And it wasn't just no to us. It was no to everyone. And then I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, and then it took me a couple of years to realize, wow, we're never going to be able to raise more money. And then it felt like, oh, wow, we're going bankrupt and I'm going to be a tremendous failure, tremendous anxiety. And, you know, I'm going to blow in my dad's money. I should have gone into this pump business. And, you know, and then I'm going to ruin my friends' careers. And it just felt like, you know, the, the weight of the world was on my shoulders. How hard was that for you, you know, having those feelings? Because as an entrepreneur and as a, a human being myself, you know, I struggle with a lot of that anxiety and a lot of those things you've said have gone through my mind at many a times building the businesses I've built. But how are you able to, with those feelings, how are you able to move on? Because it's, you can curl up, right? Or you can move on. 
how did you get yourself? What was it that drove you out of that situation? And I think what kept me going, and I think you're right, Robert, and you felt as an entrepreneur, you can kind of feel this crushing weight. And you're right, sometimes you just don't even want to get up off the couch. And, uh, and I definitely had moments like that. But I think what kept me going, ultimately what kept us going was one, I did start the company with you know, friends and my co-founder, Chris, he was my best friend from MIT. And, and so one, I think we just supported each other. So I think having co-founders, because you know, it's such a tough journey, I would never, I've never started a company alone. Like I would never want to, because I think, you know, we just kind of emotionally kept each other going because we were in it together. And then secondly, I think, you know, when times were worse for us, like 2001, 2002, we did have some early customers. And while the world kind of for a while turned against the internet, and you might remember also 2001, Wall Street was saying Amazon was going bankrupt. I just remember I had a lawyer end up helping us. He was just, I just don't get Amazon. Who would ever invest in it? And uh, I still think about that to this day. But yes, definitely it was uh, thinking back to, to those days and kind of the unknown where a lot of your younger listeners probably don't weren't even old enough to recall, but it was an interesting time, you know, and it was unknown. Yeah. I say maybe a flashback is similar like crypto, you know, right now. <laughs> yeah. crypto, like two years ago was like you could launch any currency and you know, be a billionaire. That's a bit what the internet was like back at the 99 where totally. it was like launch any.com, you'd be a billionaire. And then two years later, just like crypto now, it's like, oh, all these people are idiots, right? These currencies are all dumb ideas. It's a scam. A lot of people felt that way about the internet. And, and even our technology was designed to help people sell online. Most manufacturers by 2001 were saying, that was a fad. You know, yeah. I'm like happy sending out my product information and paper catalogs and CD-ROMs and I don't need your online software. But then we did have some visionary customers. And so I said, you know, what kept me going was my co-founders, our team. So I kept believing we kept grinding together. But then also we had some early customers that started having success. And I remember one in particular, SPX Lightning, they made industrial mixers out of Rochester, New York. And uh, but I remember their president, Jake Caraviello, and he had one very tough meeting with me in 2000. Like I flew out to Rochester and he just closed the door. It's like an ex-football player and started yelling at me. He's <laughs> like, I bet on you, your project's way behind, the software isn't working. And sadly, he was right, but we stuck with him. And by 2001, it was starting to work. And they were actually able to prove when they took their quotes and orders online from their distributors they were doing it 80, 90% faster and it was working. So we only had about a dozen early customers, but we did make the technology work for them. And it was really hard to make it work for them, but we we're like, oh, wow, this internet thing and delivering software online, doing things online, it is a better way to do it. You know, the challenges back then were still like dial up internet. So it was like really slow and there were a lot of technical issues we were solving, but ultimately it did work. And so we kind of said, hey, if we keep grinding, persevering, taking care of our customer, taking care of the team, eventually the market will catch on. We didn't know when, but that was kind of why we just kept grinding. And you know, then a few years later, all of a sudden, SaaS internet came back and became hot again. But, but we had to go through that kind of you know, nuclear winter, both personally, emotionally, and you know, for our industry. Yeah, going through that and, and just even the situation with this customer in Rochester and, and knowing as you seem very similar in, in, in the way I operate too, and perfectionist and wanting everyone to be happy. And that must've been very difficult for you. And, and you still recall it so vividly. It sounds like even today, it's after all this success you've had more from our guest, but first 
a word from our sponsors. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Launch Your Business, a show where you'll learn how to start your business, save time, and make better decisions. How much am I supposed to charge for this? I feel like I'm spending more money than I'm making. Why is this so confusing? Launching a business is challenging, but it doesn't have to be confusing. That is where I come in. I'm Terry Rice, staff writer and business development expert in residence here at Entrepreneur Media. Each week on the podcast, we'll give you tactical advice to scale your business while also providing you with the mindset to thrive even in the most challenging situations. A lot of entrepreneurs overwhelm themselves by trying to do too much too quickly. Leading experts will offer you concrete actions, tools to leverage, and guidance on making it all work without feeling burned out. Save time by learning from the wins and losses of others who have ventured off the beaten path to attain fulfillment on their own terms. To me, success as an entrepreneur is freedom. Join us each week and subscribe to Launch Your Business wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So were those really difficult times? Because I'm sure you had a few of those conversations with a few different customers. Yeah, no, it did like, kind of feel overwhelming. You know, I get back on the plane and I'm like wondering, ooh, are we really going to be able to fix this? But then I did have, and like I said, we did have a dedicated team, smart technical people. So we did fix it, but I had that fear, uncertainty, doubt, right? I'm like, I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to fix this. Yeah, and I did feel like as really letting Jay the customer down, he'd bet on us. And I was like, oh, another person I'm letting down, right? So it did, it did feel uh, heavy. But then I also feel like a lot of my best lessons in business entrepreneurship come from that. Because what I've also learned, I say to our teams now, an angry customer actually isn't that bad. I mean, my preference is a happy customer. But then I would take second, I would take an angry customer because the worst is an ambivalent customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Jay wouldn't have even taken the time to take me in his office and yell at me if he didn't still care. Yeah. Didn't still want it to work. And then a year later, when we made him happy, they also became our best reference and really helped us, you know, ultimately sell a ton of other customers. So I did learn like, and obviously that was like longer, but it's like, oh, you know, when a customer's angry, if you take care of them, like good things will come of it, right? But you obviously have to take care of them. And and maybe the other like game as an entrepreneur is like how much you like quote unquote overcommit. And because that's the other reality is entrepreneurship. At the beginning, we're all overcommitting. You know what I mean? Because like you're selling your co-founders on like sure. this company can be great. And the reality is there's no company, right? And your first customers, your beta, your alpha, it's like the reality is there's no product, right? So you're selling them on a future. And as an entrepreneur, you're not even yourself quite sure how long it's going to take if you're going to be able to deliver it but you make that leap of faith, you know, and that's, that ultimately I think is also what makes entrepreneurship so invigorating, but also like scary, you know, because yeah, you're kind of selling stuff. You're not hundred percent sure you can deliver. I know the feeling, you know, it's, it's really amazing in, in the businesses I built, even my, my last one now, which is a, a business we create podcasts for corporations and we have a technology that grows audience and listeners and, and I, I think back, we started three years ago. I didn't, I was so scared that the first podcast we produced wouldn't be good or wouldn't do well. And like the anxiety I had over that and the fear and worry. And a lot of people just wouldn't pick themselves off the matter. They wouldn't go for it. And I just was like, I've got to do this. And this is after having a few successful companies. And that's why. It's just really interesting, like especially someone like yourself who's who's been extremely successful and 
and probably still, I would imagine today, and I'm very curious, I want to get to it day to day, how you feel. But before we go there, I, I, I do want to ask you, what was it when you kind of felt that euphoria with this first business and felt like, hey, we've created something here? Was it when you finally sold it or was it prior? When was it where you kind of felt accomplished or that you had been successful? Yeah, I think it was probably around like 2007 or eight. And ultimately in those years, the greatest moment of joy is honestly were customer orders. And uh, we would still get them by e-fax, which <laughs> you remember. Oh yeah. We didn't hear, want to we get hear, that. We hear the... Uh, we would get our contracts, so you'd hear the uh, it's starting to move, and and all the sales guys would jump up to yeah. look which contract was coming through that fax machine. Like, was it mine? You know, we're hoping, and like, just ah, oh, it was such an incredible moment. But yeah, I recall. But it. I what I remember though is like yeah, like we like I was like hey, I don't really love the paper, but customers still wanted to fax in orders you know, and contracts, and so we got an e-fax which yeah. we then sent to our sales at bigmachines.com distribution list. And yeah, every time we then got a customer order, like that would be a moment of euphoria and tremendous joy because we also had to go to organic growth. So that was like literally, and we, we couldn't raise any more venture money or investor money. So it was like, we literally, that was the lifeblood of our company. It was like a, a faxed order of our customers. Like I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars a year for three years. Wow. Like, but then I think what we really felt and probably the first moments I remember, like, and I missed my sales plan, I think from 2000 through 2006, seven years in a row. And I think 2007 was like the first year the business really started working. So seven years in. And the first time I started, be we started building, beating our sales plan. And I remember that year, I think at the end of that 2007, we broke through like 10 million in revenue run rate. And, uh, and then I remember we just had a big celebration. We were building this company in Chicago. We had, went to Gibson Steakhouse. Yeah, I love Gibson. Yeah, like old school <laughs> scale. We rented like an upstairs room and we just had like, yeah, a yeah, <laughs> you know, enjoying steaks, too many drinks. I think I got home at like three in the morning and my wife made me sleep on the couch. But, like, <laughs> but then those moments of celebrating with the team. And then we started doing sales club trips. And so then the last few years, you know, we did start to have success and also enjoy the success. And together as a team, again, I think that's what made it special because. You know, every sales rep that would deliver a deal, I knew how hard it was. So I was like, I was also so thankful for them. And we just felt a lot of joy together when we started winning together. Were you able personally to enjoy the success to the degree of your co-founder? I'm not sure, you know, his personality or, or others within the organization having anxiety or, or were you able to enjoy it as much as others? Or was your head in the future thinking about what might happen? And my co-founder, Christine, I probably have similar personalities. I'm engineers from MIT. So we both have a lot of anxiety. So I think, you know, we would have those moments of celebration and success. But then, yeah, usually, you know, I wake up the next day and it's like, oh, like back to that fear and the anxiety of failing. And, you know, yes, we put up one good quarter, but how the hell are we going to do the next one, right? Or, or I have a red customer. I still have a customer that's mad at me because the other thing, you send up more and more customers, complex enterprise projects. There's always a customer mad at you. And so, yeah, so I'd say overall, more fear, more anxiety, moments of joy, but I didn't really have that sustained gratification. Like, I don't think I ever had that while I was building my first company. And I was always more the fear, the anxiety, like even when things were started going well, and we started making money. And, and even when the external world started saying, Oh, you're an amazing entrepreneur. It was like, I, I didn't feel it yet. Yeah. 
it's amazing. It just really is. And sometimes I'll think, you know, that's what helped probably make you successful. And other times I could think that you would have been successful regardless because you wanted to be you. And it's very interesting to think about that. But I want to get to G2, but tell me, so in terms of big machines and that business, you eventually sold the company. How did that come about? And tell me how that felt. Yeah. And we sold it in two stages. So we first sold, we did like a growth recap where we sold the majority to private equity. And then two years later, it was sold to Oracle. And honestly, the Oracle sale, that, that felt really good ultimately because yeah. it was like the final ribbon on it. And, uh, but honestly, like selling, we sold over 50% to private growth equity. And honestly, that was very traumatic because, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'd gotten used to like deciding everything and the strategies. Mm-hmm. And by that point, while I still had a fear, anxiety, and doubt, like, you know, we'd grown it from zero to 50 million revenue run rate and, you know, we recapped it successfully. So we made money and that felt good. Like at least the financial pressure felt like it was gone. But then I had, you know, then I had a board and, and honestly, I, I didn't handle it well, where like they obviously wanted input. And I knew it, like my mind knew, I'm like, okay, if you sell 51%, like you're going to have a boss, but emotionally I wasn't ready for it, you know? And then yeah. like two board meetings after we did that, I, I stepped down with the CEO and, and, you know, helped them. Then they kind of got a year off because they then paid me to transition. Like they brought in one of their people and ultimately it turned out great company sold Oracle all fine. But to me, it felt very traumatic, right? Because my ego identity was so attached to big machines and I was Mr. Big Machines and that was my life. That was my identity aside from, you know, family. And, and uh, so that, that was very hard at first also to then like kind of step away from my baby, you know, after all those years of struggle. Yeah, no, I, I, my first business sold to a private equity firm and, and it's a wake up call when you go from owning your own business or running your own business rather. And, making the decisions to people just drilling you on EBITDA and making decisions for you in terms of who to get rid of where, and then we, we align with a good company. Unfortunately for, for us, our, our second bite of the apple, we were about to take it. And then the 2008 uh, financial crisis happened. Uh, We're about to sell the company again to StubHub and that fell through. So we didn't do quite as well that, second time, but it was an incredible learning experience. And, you know, I want to get to to G2 because this company that you've created with your co-founders is pretty incredible. And tell me about it and, and, and tell me the idea behind it, what it, what it is, how you thought of it, and just the incredible things you're doing today. And yeah, no, thank you. And G2 was inspired by our experience at Big Machines. Because honestly, we thought it was way too hard to sell software, way too hard to buy software. And at Big Machines, we also built more of a niche application. And now it's kind of well-known configure price quote software, but we kind of created that market. And I remember some of our ultimate customers at Big Machines were companies like G Energy or Rolls-Royce that made these huge Big Machines turbines. And I remember they, they'd say to us after they discovered us, like, we wish we'd found you two years ago. We've been building this software in-house. And so, and at the time, I think the status quo in the industry was Gartner and Gartner Magic Quadrants. You know, but Gartner always also made me mad as an entrepreneur because they would exclude you until you had like 20 million in revenue and you had, you know, 100 enterprise customers. So one, maybe you could get like a cool vendor mention, but they would just kind of exclude you and ignore you, which we thought was bad for us, but also bad for the buyer because, you know, the more innovative apps, the up and coming apps, they weren't going to make it in the Gartner and Forrester reports for years. 
And then secondly, you know, by also when we started G2 in 2012, we were already buying so much online with Amazon and, and also, you know, they invented online reviews. I think Jeff Bezos way back in 1996. And it was kind of an obvious idea. We thought, you know, like in B2C, we buy everything based on online reviews and peer reviews, and it doesn't exist for software. Our industry is missing it. And so that was when we started G2. We said, we're going to build the Yelp for business software. And at that time, Yelp was also very cool. They were just going public. And I like to say it's before Google went evil on them. But, uh, but, you know, but also we said for software, the other analogy was like, we were like, Hey, the Gartner analyst is like the, is like the, you know, the, the, like the diner that can't eat the food, you know, because they're not actually using the software. They stand outside the restaurant and say, how is right. Robert, you know, and we're like, why don't we just ask the person eating the food, AKA the software user. And we could democratize it, you know, where now there's over a hundred thousand different SaaS and software applications, cloud services listed on G2 and any entrepreneur can start for free. And once they have 10 customer reviews, they start showing up in our ratings and they don't have to pay us a penny. And frankly, we can also, because we're not relying on a human analyst who can only cover so many products, right? We can, we can represent the full software universe. And we started G2 with just one category, CRM software. And today there's over 2000 categories. And we keep adding them. Like one of the latest categories, vector databases, which is really driving AI, you know, or LLMs. And so we keep, because our industry keeps innovating. And yeah. software truly is eating the world. And I like to say G2 is a buffet where, you know, you can find the best software for you, for your business, for your business function, and you can find it based on trusted reviews. And that was a, the founding idea. And it is pretty cool, you know, just over a decade later, it is starting to come to life. We have like eight or 9 million business people, knowledge workers coming to G2 every month to find the best software. And, but I think we're also only halfway done because uh, our industry keeps growing. And, and ultimately we want to have, 1 billion knowledge workers. That's, I think, I think it might even be a Gartner number, but yeah, I think that's how many there are in the world. And that keeps growing as well. You know, more and more people in countries like India are becoming knowledge workers. Sure. And, and as knowledge workers, we all need apps, right? Like the pandemic accelerated that. We're on a Zoom. Oh, yeah. I remember the day the pandemic started, there was a 400% surge in video conferencing software category traffic on G2. And so, you know, we're excited to see it coming to life, but it still feels halfway built. And that's probably also true in entrepreneurship. I do love that. Jeff Bezos day one mantra. I still feel like it's day one at G2. Of course, all the work we've done the past decade puts us in a good position to do a lot on day one, but you know, but I feel like it's gonna be another decade to really uh, fully realize our vision. Well, I, I know you are, are going to continue down the path and, and do well before I let you go. And it is, again, it's incredible. Yeah, I was messing around on G2 before and just taking a look in, in, in what you've built. But before I let you go, just wanted to ask you, nowadays, as an entrepreneur has been so successful, is it still an up and down battle personally for you? You know, good days, bad days, highs, lows, sometimes having to pick yourself off the mat? Or have you gotten to a point where you've learned enough or have been through enough where you've learned how to handle some of those situations a little bit better. Yeah, Robert, uh, for me, I do think as an entrepreneur, the highs and lows do continue. You know, I still have them every day. And even I think last night I had like a nightmare, really weird nightmare, but I was like, I'd forgotten about a bunch of meetings in my Google calendar and uh, no idea why, but I still, I think, deal with the fear, anxiety and the highs and the lows. And honestly, that's why I still love it. You know, I didn't mention this, but my second company, we built another company, Steelbrick in parallel to G2 is acquired by Salesforce. And Salesforce is an incredible company, you know, built by an entrepreneur marketing oh, yeah. I very much admire. And I worked there, you know, about a year and a half. Great company. And I integrated it. And for a while, I also felt euphoric. But then after a while, as honestly, I'm like, huh, 
like this company is so well run, like kind of, and frankly, no matter what I do, it's not going to move the stock price, you know? And so I kind of lost that, like, it's all on me. And then I actually, I realized I missed it, you know, cause I kind of felt flatlined. Yeah. Again, something my friends and our entrepreneurs couldn't get. They're like, what do you mean? Like you have a great job, right? Thing, you know, you work for a great company. Like, why can't you just be happy and chill out? Right. But, and luckily for me, my co-founder had done a great job while well, I was focused on Spielberg building G2, but I said, Hey, no, I, I want to go back to the highs and lows. And probably the advantage I've gained is that it is a choice. I'm like, at this point in my life, I'm like, hey, I'm choosing it. You know, and even just coming at it from that consciousness, I think I can remind myself, like, you know, when I'm having that nightmare, I'm like, no, it's going to be okay. You've seen this before and you've always found a way through it. And, uh, and I think that's easier now, you know, just having more experience, more years. And, and I work with a coach, you know, which is also kind of like a therapist. Sure. And, I also learned, I started working with a conscious leadership coach 15 years ago, and I still do that because I found having a coach, you know, therapist to guide me through it is, has been essential. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm, I'm so uh, thankful for you coming on, being so authentic and transparent. And I related to just about everything you said in terms of the mental makeup of just human beings in general, but entrepreneurs and and I really appreciate your honesty. And I know a lot of our listeners will too. And congratulations on all your success. And I am sure you are going to continue to uh, be successful and, and achieve your goals at G2 and, and beyond that. Because like you said, you know, you can't, you're at Salesforce and your friends are saying you should just be psyched and happy. And it's like, you need that. You need that anxiety or you need that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, there's a roller coaster right the yeah <laughs> I, I get it i get it but uh thanks so much goddard and uh again thanks for coming on how success happens oh thank you robert really appreciate you having me and that's our episode if you like what you heard please subscribe to how success happens wherever you get your podcasts we come out with a new episode every wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.